Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Illustration Department podcast. My name is Giuseppe Castellano. In this podcast, I talk to folks in illustration, graphic design, publishing, animation, and other creative fields about their work, the lessons they've learned, and the bumps and bruises they've experienced along the way. In this episode, my guest is Rick Richter, literary agent and senior partner at Avitas Creative Management. Here in the US, some authors celebrate when their book is banned in certain states. It's great publicity, a sales boost. As Rick and I discuss, the reality of the matter is not worth celebrating. Among other topics, Rick talks about the early days of his publishing career, including the co-founding of Candlewick. We remember the late, great Ian Faulkner. And Rick and I take a deep dive into the process of querying agents and why providing comparison titles is a waste of time. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Often when an illustrator tells their parents that they want to get into illustration, specifically publishing, they're met with confused looks and um, sometimes like downright just unsupportive you know, with their kid's dream of getting into publishing. They don't feel like their kid will be able to support themselves. You, however, had a slightly different experience. Your father was pretty supportive of the fact that you wanted to get into some kind of book-related career. Is that right? Yeah, well, he, you know, he worked at the Boston Globe, and perhaps more importantly, he worked the night shift uh, at the Boston Globe, which right. um, what they was what they called the lobster or lobster shift nice. right, in Boston. Love it, right? I'm a and football tower, so I don't love it, but yeah, keep going. <laughs> right, and so you know, it was a hard life, but he felt, you know, the work that he did, he thought was was really kind of in a way super noble work and it was the t- at the time of spotlight and you know if you know whitey bulger that famous criminal was terrorizing boston and um you know that kind of rubbed off on me he thought the book business um was also a noble perhaps even more noble business because you know on fridays you wrapped fish with newspaper but you didn't you know the, the book business was more permanent right, right? right and you know he thought that Ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, you know, what you did was going to have more lasting import, you know. So he was supportive, but he couldn't help me at all. Mm -hmm. Um, He didn't know anybody. You know, oftentimes, perhaps people know people who know people who can get them into publishing. But I had none of that advantage. So, you know, I don't think it's possible to start at a, you know, at a lower (laughs) place on the ladder. I started packing books in a warehouse for a little tiny company called Picture Book Studio Mm -hmm. um, based in Framingham, Massachusetts. and. There were literally like seven of us um, in the most hard scrabble, you know, publishing operation you can imagine. Is this when you met Matoko at, at that point or was that a little bit later? Matoko in a way. Matoko actually hired me. You know, it's the superstar agent of Eric Carl right. um, for many years and managed, um, you know, his catalog and and um, can take, a, I think, um, a good share of the credit for him being managed so wise, wisely over the sure, years. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, no, she was my boss, my first boss, along with Andrew Clements, who wrote, um, you know, the famous uh, middle grade book, Frindle, right. kind of a magical, you know, group of people um, that uh, came together around the idea of publishing people like Elizabeth Werger, the nice. Arthur, Arthur Rackham of our times. Oh, and, for uh, sure. Right. So, she, you know, she was amazing and other people like her and, you know. We, we thought we know we were thought we thought we were pretty cool, but we were starving. I tell you what, it was hard work and and very very low pay. <laughs> I began my 
publishing career at Simon & Schuster as a design assistant under Honey Yammer, under the uh, Little Simon and Simon Spotlight imprints there. And it was June of 99. Now, the great Honey Yammer. The great Honey Yammer. I know. She's just yeah. she's just amazing. You were lucky. I know I was lucky. And, it, and it's, as a side note, many, many years later, I'm an executive art director now at Penguin. I'm in charge of my own team. I meet her at a conference randomly. I'm like, oh, my God, you're here. So we got to talking, and I just told her. I'm like, you know, I just I need to tell you that pretty much everything I do, everything I've, I've, I teach to the design team and how I operate and all of it comes from you. And I just want you to know that, that like everything I do, I often ask myself, what would Hani do in this situation? And in her typical Hani sort of dry humor, she just kind of just shook her head and went, yeah, I know. <laughs> that sounds exactly right. Yeah. Anyways, um, were you the president then? In 99, or were you still head of the sales and distribution division? Yeah, yeah. 99, probably when you arrived, I was president of the kids division. Then I moved over and reorganized the sales organization and right. then came back to the kids group. Um, so, yeah, I would have been. I mean, those were sort of the golden years at SNS. And, right. um, you know, not, not to go on too much about that, but you, you came to the company at a very good time. Yeah, I'll say. At the time, I didn't even know what I was looking at. And now I look back on those years amazing book after amazing book after a game-changing book like tango makes three or you know when ian faulkner comes in i didn't even know i I remember one time i walked through yeah i went into the lobby right fourth what was the fourth floor if i'm not mistaken or was it 14th floor it was four right Uh, fourth floor yeah it was fourth floor walk in the fourth floor lobby take a right i'm heading over to my cubicle i pass by the one corner cubicle that you the first one you see on the right hand side and in it was ian faulkner he was making changes to the first Olivia book. I peeked in and noticed that it was charcoal pencils. I think he might have had a rag or something to sort of blend the charcoal and red gouache. That's what I remember. Well, Ian was a force of nature, really. I mean, he'd had um, you know a stellar career by the time he got to Simon and Schuster. Right. Um, his you know his art had appeared on the cover of the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. He'd done set sets for major um, New York New York uh, productions on Broadway, and um, he was well wired in the entertainment community. I went to his memorial service, mm-hmm. and and it was a star studded. It was just amazing. Like former stars of Saturday Night Live. Wow. Extraordinary range, right? But right. if you were to meet Ian, and I say this to to all of the folks listening, he you know, he was the most self-deprecating, funny, quiet, shy person. You just wanted to love him and you wanted to help him, right? Right. And you know, he brought in a lot of illustrations of pigs of Olivia. What we noticed right away is that the consistency of the character of Olivia from from you know from panel to panel, right, and um, and the depth of emotion that he was able to bring to the character, right. Mm-hmm. I remember this vividly. Brenda Bowen, you know, called me up and said, "You have to come see this." Brenda Bowen was the head of editorial at the time for the for the whole of the kids division, and um, you know, she was absolutely right. It was the most astounding thing I'd ever seen, and and the thing was on fire really from from practically the moment um, Ian stepped in the door. And and what's to take away from that? Maybe. You know, just really um, that single identifiable character that, that melts your heart is something so powerful. And we've seen it over and over again in kids' books. Sure. You know, when Faulkner showed his book to an agent at William Morris, that agent told him that 
the book was never going to get published. From my understanding, when Ian showed the drawings or whatever he showed to Anne Schwartz, apparently he showed more than 100 pages of a dummy. It sounds like folktale, but apparently it's true. Well, it was a lot. I don't know if it was 100, but there were a lot of images, right? Here's the other thing about Ian is you knew he was all in, right? Right. Ian was not going to be anything other than an artist. I wonder if he ever doubted for a day that that's what he was going to do for a living. um, And so I think that aspect of being all in um, to the degree that a person can do that, whether it's being a musician or an artist or whatever it is, um, there are plenty of people that, that dabble and just a few that throw everything that they have at it. Sure. I'm sure you're aware of this, but Olivia began as a Christmas card for his niece, Olivia. Yes, I was aware of that. And actually, she was mentioned you know, at his, at his memorial service, for right. sure. Wow. Seven sequels followed, just like that. <laughs> well, maybe not just like that, but... Yeah, you know, we, you know, after we knew we had a hit, right? It wasn't easy to sign up for other books. Um, you know, and when we had a mega hit, then, of course, you know, um, animation started to surface and merchandise and things like that. So, Of which I was a designer. When when the media tie-in books came into Simon & Schuster, that was my that was our team. Me, Hani, John, we did the books for Olivia. And it was cool because we had to find illustrators who could – they could copy the art of the show. They also had to at least capture some of the, some of the sensibility of Ian's original art from the trade books. Um, so it was a it was a really interesting challenge that um, I enjoyed at least. Yeah, I don't know if you worked on the Eloise books that were based on Hillary Knight's work too. It's a and I sometimes think that the people who are able to work in the style of a celebrated illustrator are every bit as talented. Yeah. Um, because because it takes a lot sure. um, to be able to capture the essence of a Hillary Knight or an Ian Falconer. Right. You founded Candlewick. Is that right? Absolutely not true. Co-founded. Uh, I'd love to. <laughs> co-founded Candlewick. <laughs> I was, yeah, that, I am often given um, that credit, which I totally don't deserve. I was on the founding management team. There was a gent named David, David Ford who had been at Sebastian Walker um, of Walker Books in the UK. He had sure. been, been his right-hand person. He came to the States. He really, you know, he hired all the people. And, you know, he was, he was instrumental in establishing the look and the feel of Candlewick. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, you know, there was just five of us when we got there. You know, and and we were sitting on the floor because uh, the furniture hadn't been ordered, and we had yellow pads, and we made lists of things to do, right? Because that's mm-hmm. how companies start. Right. And I don't think I w- I would ever love a company as much as I loved Candlewick. It was my heart and soul because we poured so much. It was really hard work, and a lot of people thought we'd fail. Mm-hmm. Um. So so I, you know I love that company with all my heart. Um. But there was you know ultimately there was a struggle over, and this sounds ironic now whether we'd actually be able to originate a lot of books in the U.S. Um, and, you know, it just, just sounds so funny because now, of course, um, Candlewick is such a force um, in their own origination. And uh, so so it was, uh, but it was really just a terrific experience. Where does the name Candlewick come from? Well, that's a good question. A lot of people people have asked that question. The, um, the Well, then it's the not a good question. Walker- if a lot of people ask the question, then it's a, it's a, it's a generic cliche <laughs> no. question. Right. No, no, no. It's a question that everybody wants the answer to, oh, okay. so, or some right. people, right? So, so here's the answer. The Walker Books logo, which was designed by 
Helen Oxenberry, you know, we're going on a bear hunt, you know, one yeah, of the greats, right? Of course. All right. What? Um, the, 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 yeah, right. There, there was, um, there was already a Walker books in the U S so we couldn't call the company Walker books. Okay. And so, um, the Walker books logo, the bear is carrying a candle. And so candle, what came oh, from the bear, bear's candle, which if you think of it, it's pretty logical that we were an offspring, uh, you know, of the UK company. So I was talking to uh, the art director at Holiday House, Carrie Martin, uh, a few episodes ago, and we discussed that Holiday House's logo was designed by E.H. Shepard. Really? Yeah. Well, yeah. So there's there's so there's some uh, tradition here. Yeah. As far as absolutely, you know, celebrated illustrators contributing, you know what you know that Walker Bear and Candlewick Bear will you know will go on to live for centuries. Yeah. Really. Exactly. And uh, more locally, for me, uh, the Chester County Art Association has a logo, and that sucker was designed by somebody by the name of N.C. Wyeth. Really? Yeah. Well, you know, apparently this logo um, designing business is a good one. Yeah. (laughs) More people should get into it. They should look into it, at least. Um, You said becoming an agent was a lesson in humility, a lesson in patience, and that as an agent, you feel the victories. Well, yeah, I mean, um, if I'd known it was as satisfying as it is, I probably would have done it a long time ago. Really? Because, you know, you are the first contact with phenomenal creative people. Um, Mm -hmm. You feel their celebrations and you feel their pain. You know, it is heartbreaking and and joyous at the same time. But I I don't think it's rare, I would say, that an editor knows – um, the folks that they're working as as well as an agent would because we're with them all the time, right? right, right. And if we're doing our jobs well, we're in contact frequently and we're um, we're there, we're cheerleaders, right? Um, mm-hmm. But the humility part, of course, is um, you know you can have been, you could have been at the top of the industry or near the top as as perhaps I was, um, but it really comes down when you submit a project to what's on the page, right? Sure. No book is bought or few books are bought based on. Um, you know, who's submitting it. Um, it's really comes down to the quality. The work in my job is to, you know, to make sure that we're as buffed and polished, polished as we can be um, when we're on sub- submission. I mean, I guess the other thing that's humbling is, you know, feeling and knowing that people have mortgages to pay or rent to pay and just sometimes how long things take in publishing. And I think if I'd been known that more or or even the editorial load, which is crushing in children's uh, publishing, you know, they carry more books. They have, you know, less in the way of support staff. Um, you know, I ran a division, but if I'd known what I know now um, as far as the workload, and I'm sure perhaps one or two people who are listening to this will wince. But, um, you know, I think I might have uh, been a wiser leader. Hmm. Yeah, I, I sound like a broken record when I talk about this, but I it, being an agent was also something I wanted to do while I was an art director. I always felt like the next natural step from being an executive art director, you either just take another step up and maybe you're an associate publisher or, fingers crossed, a publisher, or you're an agent. I would often tell my staff like, oh, yeah, one day I'll retire and uh, become an agent. And I love everything about the idea of it. Except what you just said, like I wouldn't be able to get out of bed and know, and the minute I gain consciousness, become immediately aware that I am partially, not entirely, but I'm partially responsible for 15, 20, 25, 35 creators, helping them pay their mortgages and support themselves. And that I just, I don't know if I have it in me. 
to, to, to hold that weight? Well, yeah, no, they, everybody carries their own responsibility into the, into the, you know, situation too. Right. Um, so it's a team effort, you know, um, our authors and illustrators, you know, have to be generally prolific and, uh, you know, they have to be dedicated and have to take counsel from editors and, you know, it's, it isn't just one person. Right. You know, I remember when I was thinking about this, I spoke to Barbara Marcus, who's the, the head of, um, you know, the Random House Kids program, and sure. who was an agent very briefly. She said, oh, Rick, the detail will crush you. But she forgot to say how fantastic it is when you call uh, an illustrator or an author and you say, congratulations, you are right. going to be published. As many agents do, you've shared your areas of interest for creators to keep in mind. They include self-help, pop culture, memoir, history, science, politics, faith. You also listed, quote, diverse voices in all categories. Why is that? Well, part of that is purely practical. The publishing industry um, on both sides, the kids and the adult side, we're doing a lot of catching up, um, a lot of much needed catching up in these areas. Um, and by diversity, you know, this isn't just ethnicity or skin color. It's it's um, neurodiversity, sexual orientation. What we're trying to accomplish as an industry is to have the books that are published match the face in the orientation of America and the ethnicity you know, of America. Right. Um, okay. We've been not very good at that for a long time. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so if I can keep my doors wide open, I mean, for instance, um, you know, in the last um, year, I've sold three books by either trans authors or with trans uh, characters as a central character. Right. Um, this is a moment in history, really, for for trans rights. And if I can contribute in a little way or sometimes even in a big way, because, you know, I, I've been around the publishing of two of the most banned books in America, Entangle Mix 3, and uh, it's perfectly normal by Michael Emberley, who's a client. Uh, I'm super proud of that, right? Um, right. You know, right. You know if, if, if you can just contribute in some way. Right. Um, so that's why I keep my doors wide open, because the doors have been shut for so long. Sure. Of course. Like, why not? Why not have it in your bio? But I suppose, shouldn't it just be assumed that you would be looking for diverse voices in all categories? Like why explicitly state that in your bio? Yeah, great question. I think, you know, I actually specifically list the categories and I'm, I'm interested in where I've had success. That would also include, include of course, picture book in middle grade and right. some YA, right? Right. Yeah. But um, there are areas that, you know, that, you know, I'm not as strong in, but I, again, I want to keep the keep the doors open. And if it's not right for me, I'll refer them within the the agency. We have 40 agents. Mm -hmm. Honestly, it's just about keeping the doors open. Yeah. Folks from underrepresented communities, they kind of deserve it at this point. And, mm -hmm. um, it's, and it's a moment where we can catch up um, and have our, you know, again, publishing program, you know, match America. Sure. As you know, there's a book banning conversation is quite heated these days. Sure. There's a there's a sort of a, an assumption that if your book is on a banned book list, it's actually good for you. It increases sales. Is that true, or is that partially true, or is that a total myth? <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, I think it's true if a book um, is already you know right, it's um, well established, selling. right? It's already well established in the marketplace. It's particularly hard on debut authors 
or folks um, who are trying to elbow, elbow their way into the industry. Mm-hmm. I really feel for folks who, who never get a chance, um, the, the, the sort of Machiavellian way to look at it is what, what great publicity. But actually, if you're a debut author, it's probably not, um, you know, the best day of your life when you find out your book has been banned, right? Yeah, that's how I sort of react to it. I, I don't know. I, I'd rather not have my book banned. How about that? I mean, when Tanko when Tanko makes three back then, I mean, this was what twenty two years ago, twenty years ago. That book. I mean, if that book came out today, would it be banned? You know, it would still be banned in some states, obviously, right. but but it would not have caused the kind of kerfuffle that it did cause. And you know. Um, we were super proud. I was going to say, like, how did you react? I mean, what 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 was your role as the president of Simon and Schuster's Children's Division? This book getting tons of media and it's getting banned. What do you you wake up in the morning? You get into work. What are you guys talking about? What is your team? What is the executive team discussing, if anything? I think we were at that point because it wasn't as big a movement um, as it is now. We were fairly dismissive of it. And, and, you know, we felt that the book needed to be published. And remember, the editor on that, he since passed, it was David Gale. And, yeah. you know, David was a person of such integrity um, that you really couldn't question his motives. And, you know, the book itself was so well done. It was really unimpeachable from the standpoint of, of just the craft of the book. Sure. We're proud of it, but it, it just didn't it didn't carry the same kind of gravitas that that um, a band you know the band book movement does now and you know let's hope it's like the tea party or anything else it'll pass um, but it doesn't seem like it right now if you find value in this podcast please consider supporting it as a patron your support will help me keep the podcast on its weekly schedule patrons receive perks including a reusable 10 percent off discount code access to dozens of patron only episodes opportunities to provide questions for guests a soft enamel pin with our logo, designed by me, and more. Become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash illustration D-E-P-T. And now, back to our conversation. So when illustrators slash authors submit their work to you, do you look for the brand potential? Are you looking specifically for that, that you, you said earlier, that, that character that maybe could carry... A series is that something that that enters into your mind at all, consciously, or do you just sort of like let it come when it when it comes? I can tell you exactly what I do look for. Does the book tell the truth? Right? Mm-hmm. Does it promise to be as entertaining for the parent as it is for the kid? Because if that happens, um, then you're really onto something. Because the parent is going to talk about it for sure, but they're going to be so happy when the kid picks that book out of this bookshelf and brings it over to them. Right. And we all know there are some books where that isn't the case, right? Sure. Um, and then, you know, I, you know, I certainly look for the craft. I'm particularly drawn to author illustrators, you know, for whatever reason, because it's easier perhaps for me to see the full extent. If there is a single identifiable character, that can be a plus. But if any of these other things are not true, it doesn't matter if there's a, you know, a single identifiable character. Sure. And in the, in the sort of discussion of what publishers want, often people will say, well, they want illustrator-author combos. And I have to say, in my experience, I don't ever recall us having any kind of conversation when we're talking about what we're going to acquire. And someone says, 
oh, well, make sure they're an illustrator and author. I rarely worked with illustrators slash authors, mostly worked with illustrators who illustrated other authors' works. So is that, a, is that true or is that a myth? Well, you're, you're right. No one ever says, no one in, in a publishing company says, I'm looking you know, for author illustrators because you know, it's rare that someone can you know, present a whole package that feels right. that it's, it's all, all of a piece. Right? It's a very special talent. It's why I'm so interested in it because it's it's really you know extraordinary when you see a, a person who can do that. However, you're absolutely right. Um, most books get put together. I mean, they're actually assembled at the publishing house, right? People sure. always ask, right? Should I submit my manuscript with an illustrator? And I categorically say, probably not, right? Because that's what the publisher is going to do for you. I say and no, but I say it much more colorfully than you do. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's. It's, uh, you know, you, you, part of what you get, what you, with the value of the publisher is that tremendous matching ability and the editor and the, you know, the art director standing, you know, over that screen saying, I love that person's work. Let's find out if they're interested yeah. in this manuscript. Right. So favorite part yeah. of my job, Rick. Yes. Yeah, I, I used to love that. Yep. I used to love looking for illustrators. You get a manuscript on your desk, read it, talk to your editor. Right. What are you looking for? What kind of, you know, what stylistic uh, approach should, do, you, do you want us to take? You gather info from the publisher and just, you know, what you need to gather. And then you start looking for this artist. It's a really fascinating process. Looking at a screen with your teammates, talking about illustrators portfolios. What do you think about that? Do you think they'll be able to draw this character? It was it was wild to see the sort of chemistry kind of like come together. And then it eventually yielded this beautiful book. Giuseppe, I think a lot of people don't realize that there are there are a few hands in the in the mix as far as the creative process of of, of putting that that book right. together. Even if it's a, a middle grade or YA and cover middle graded, you know, line drawings or YA, um, you know, even the cover, um, there's there's a lot of eyes that look at that before it's published. Um, sometimes even including in the sales department, um, you know. So <laughs> for for better, I, for better, yeah. I have I Not have worse. a lot of crying after after covers meetings. Um, <laughs> I don't, I do not miss those days. Oh my god! I was talking to Tracy Van Stratton about that too, and I'm just like, what cover meeting? Because I remember she would occasionally say something at a covers meeting, and I, I was young, I didn't know anything, and I was like, who the fuck is this that's saying something about my cover? Marketing, publicity. You don't have a say in book cover design. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Well, we now know right. Right, um, that, that Tracy is the Dion of uh, publicity. Oh, she's unbelievable. She, and, and she and Emma, and then we had, you know, you had mentioned in our earlier conversation, you know, that sales at Simon & Schuster quadrupled, you know, um, in and around the time that I was there, right. which was huge. No, in, in, in and around the time I was there, Rick. <laughs> that must have been that it. That was in definitely it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll study the I ledger later. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so but we had just a, a stellar team. Yeah. Right? So uh, Emma, who had been trained the knee of Margaret McIlvery, and she was know, there, and I didn't even know the significance of that either. Sorry to sorry to interrupt you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So you know, Mark, and I'll tell you a funny story about Margaret Margaret McIlvery, and it's and I think it'll be quick. When I first started, well, really, my first few days taking over the division, Margaret had an office next to mine, and I went and I said. Because you know, I've come from Candlewick, a totally different co corporate culture, if it was they, even that. And I, I said to Margaret McElderry, I said, um, Margaret, if I'm doing something just clearly wrong, 
please tell me, right? There's a long silence and she smiled and she said, Rick, are you asking me to be a spy? <laughs> and, of course, and of course, Margaret McElderry had been a spy. She'd been in the OSI, right? I didn't know that. Wow. It's good fun. Good yeah. fun. She said. You know that I work with illustrators on a day-to-day basis, preparing materials to submit to agents. And some of them have said, Giuseppe, I just saw a book at the bookstore that's basically the same as mine. What do I do? And sometimes they'll answer their own question. Their answer is, I should just stop because that book already exists. To which I say, no, that book exists. By the time your book is acquired, two years, three years later, it will end up on a bookshelf. Who knows what that book is going to, where that book is going to be? The life span of a book can be short. So can our memories. Also, there's room for more than one book that covers the same subject matter. That's what I say to them. What do you say to them? I would say that if it's a best-selling book, um, if it's a book that says, I love you more than that other book loves you, right? Um, and, and beautiful pastel um, drawings of rabbits, <laughs> um, I, I would say, uh, yeah, you might want to rethink that. Yeah, that's a half-decent title. Yeah, thank you. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. Um, you're welcome. The, <laughs> the, uh, but, but you're absolutely right. The institutional memory of the, in the children's book world is very um, short. There are thousands of books published every year. Many come on and off the bookshelves. Um, you know, there's lots of different ways to tell a story about a dog, mm-hmm. uh, even a rescue dog. And also you're bringing, you know, you're bringing your own personal experience to the, you know, to the table. So, yep. um, and there are whole companies that have made, you know, fabulous livings, one in the UK that did nothing but knock off bestsellers, right? Name names, Rick. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. No, no, no. No, I, I will say they were bought recently by another, another major corporation in the US, but never mind. That's, I, I think you're right, Giuseppe. I think, you know, uh, there's plenty of room out there. Um, and mm-hmm. knowing authors and illustrators, as I do, they're the hardest on themselves. Um, oh, for sure. And in this case, in this case, no need to be. How important are comps to you? Uh, well, um, I can tell you how comps are used, right? I don't look at them at all when people are submitting to me um, because mm-hmm. I have no use for, use for them. Um, mm-hmm. If you, When I submit to uh, a publisher, I have an advantage over you know, authors and illustrators because I have access to sales information. And the comps that I'll use in a pitch letter um, will probably be carried over to the tip sheet and to the P&L. Um, the P&L is the financial document that they use to acquire books, and the tip sheet is the reference document that a sales um, representative uses when they pitch a, pitch a book. Right. But you know, the author and the illustrator is probably the worst person, um, and, 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 and I'm sure they're, you know, everyone's intentions are grand, but um, they're the worst person to come up with that because Thank they you. don't necessarily – you're welcome. They don't have the scope of knowledge, nor do they have the access to the sales figures. And that's what that's what comps are about. They're about sales. Exactly. Right? And they're about taking risk off the table. I thank you for saying that, Rick. I can't tell you how often I've had conversations with illustrators who are sweating the comps. And by the and for anyone who's listening, scratching their head, like what the hell's a comp? It's a comparison title. So you're just comparing your book when you're submitting it to an agent or a publisher to two other books. This book is like this and this, or the readers of that book and that book will like my book because X, Y, and Z. And they sweat it. And I'm just like telling them, look, let's come up with some titles, but don't worry about it. This should not be 
I think it shouldn't be, and it sounds like it's not with you, it should not be the reason an agent rejects you or a publisher passes on you. It's not the comp. Don't it's sweat never, it as it's, much. <laughs> it's never the comp. Thank you. And I, honestly, I don't even look at them. Then why why do – I mean, I know you can't speak for all agents, but why why are authors and illustrators who I, again, I 100% agree with you, the on the, on the list of people who know more – about the books that are being published over the past five, 10 years, on the very bottom of that list is the author illustrator who's submitting their book. So why are they why are they required after spending however much time and effort on creating this beautiful dummy and illustrating and now they gotta come up with these two books that the agent knows and the publisher knows probably aren't the right comps. It's a waste of fucking time. <laughs> I can't. I, I I I completely agree with you. But you know, um, I think in some instances, maybe some agents would want to, you know, skip a step of having to do that and you know move that move, move that into the mix. Well, but really, it's a, reassess that. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. I can't speak for them. Maybe there are other reasons. It does seem sad um, that people spend their their time working on that, largely because you have to know the sales information. Right. How much personality should a query email have? or submission email or whatever people want to call it. Let me see if I can make something up here real quick. Hi, Rick. My name is Giuseppe Castellano. I live in such and such Pennsylvania. I'm an illustrator and author and attached to this email, please find my 32 page picture book, 400 word, blah, 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 entitled such and such. And when I'm not illustrating and writing, I'm usually just hanging out with my family and gardening and trying to figure out a way to chase those damn deer away. You know how it is. <laughs> By the way, go Orioles. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, yeah, okay. I don't, I don't necessarily need to know where you live right away. All right. Um, and I don't necessarily need to know what your hobbies are in, the, in, um, in that um, pitch letter. What I do need to know is why you embarked on this piece of creativity. What drove you? You know, this book comes from my personal you know, experience with X or Y. Give me some sense of what the project is and, and what's driving you creatively. Mm -hmm. It can be, it should be spelled correctly in like, mm -hmm. you know, correctly correct because, you know, that's sometimes can be, you know, it's not so necessary, but it's it's a good thing, right? right. So run it, through, run it through. Right. Run through Grammarly if you can, you know, something like that. But, you know, at the same time, you know, I just want to feel something when I when I read this. It's the same thing, you know, that we'll do in the pitch letter. We want the editor to feel like this is going to be worth, you know, keep going because there's so many places to stop, you know, in the, in the creative process. And that's really we want to keep people going. Right. So right. intrigue me. Make me open this up. It won't be about you ultimately. It will be about or your dynamic personality, as dynamic as it is, Giuseppe. It'll be um, it, it'll be about the work itself. Right. The reason I think a hobby is important, and again, I one hundred percent defer to you. You're the agent. <laughs> right. But well, every everybody's different. That's yeah. true. That is true. That's true. The reason I like the hobby thing is because it forms. It could potentially form a connection. So I I spend my time in the garden chasing deer away from my you know hydrangeas or whatever. There is an off chance that the person I'm submitting to also has experience chasing deer away from hydrangeas or okay. loves gardening. Right. So that just kind of like forms just one tiny little connection. Like, ooh, they're from Pennsylvania? I, my mom is from Pennsylvania. They like gardening. Okay. I right. like gardening. That's interesting. Let me keep reading. 
So it just said, yeah, again, I mean, the human, it's the, the human connection of it. I think that's interesting, and I hadn't really thought of it that way. So I, you may have beyond to something. What's more intriguing to me, if you're going to include something like that, is a is a really unusual fact to yourself. Like you know, when I'm not writing and illustrating, I raise you know Vietnamese pigs, or you know that's awesome. um, you know something mm-hmm. like that would make me lean in, and and even better if it was somehow applicable to the work. But I, I don't disagree with what you where you're going with that. Okay. Um, I just I just think you only have. You have like a nanosecond to get uh, the attention. Oh, for um, sure. You know, every time you stray into a trope, you diminish your chances that you're gonna, you know, that, that someone's gonna, you know, click on and keep moving on. I was talking to an illustrator earlier today. She asked me an interesting question I've never been asked, which is which is saying something. She said, "Do agents keep some kind of a list?" Uh, she called it a red list, or maybe she was referring to it as a black list. Basically, someone submits something to you and you reject it, you know, you, you pass on it. It's just not for you, right? Then that person's name ends up on some kind of list so that uh, six months later or a year later, they submit to you, but you're like, well, that person's on the list. We've rejected them already. Now we will not represent them no matter what they do. I know the answer to this, but I have to hear you say it. <laughs> well, if only, A, we were that organized and and we had a memory right. that extended. Um, okay. You know, keep 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 in mind, many of us receive hundreds of mm-hmm. uh, you know submissions a month. Right. Right. So, um, very fat chance. Now, if you send me, you know, fifteen submissions over a course of three weeks, and they're all really subpar, um, I'm probably not going to open the sixteenth. So there you go. Um, I think it's really about choosing your battles. Got it. Can I submit? to more than one agent at Avitas at once? You can, you just, you can, but yet, at once you can, but you got to tell us, right? You know, it's okay. just like when I go out to, you know, you know, with a big project to, to a major house, the first question I get is who else has this, right? You know, it's good to skip that step. You know, we, we never have a conflict. If one person, you know, feels passionately about a project, um, then we're always going to let that person go with it. Right. But uh, yeah, it's, it's not a problem. You just got to let us know. Cool. Something else that comes up from time to time is when an illustrator will submit to an agent, the agent will respond positively and say, I'd love to talk to you about potentially working together. From the illustrator's point of view, it's like, oh my God, I just got offered representation. But it's not quite an offer of representation. It's like a quasi offer, half offer. It's like, okay, let's, I like what you do. I like your work. I'd like to work with you for some indefinite amount of time. And then there's a potential that they might sign, the agent might sign the illustrator, or they might not, even though the agent has sort of brought them kind of halfway into the house. It's like, Going to college and the college is saying, you know, what, you're not quite accepted, but what we want you to do is come in for the first semester and take classes <laughs> and make friends. And then after a few months, then we'll tell you if we've accepted you or not. Why would an agent do that? Well, yeah, I can, I can tell you that at the beginning of the relationship, right? Right. Um, if, you don't, if you don't have a project that's a slam dunk, right, that you know you can take to market, what you're really trying to do is – put together a project that you can take to market. Okay. Um, and that that's a process of back and forth. You're getting to know one another. You're, you're learning to what degree 
both the illustrator will take direction and then to what degree they're able to execute on direction. Um, it's always a back and forth. It's never, you know, you know, no one's dictating this, but it's, you know, you're learning about one another, right? So I would argue it's actually better for both parties, right? Because what, what's worse than signing on with an agent um, and then realizing, you know, you're just not compatible? Then you've got to go to, you know, back out by another agent whose right. first question is, have you been agented before? And, you know, what happened, right? So right. I, I would argue that that a slow and steady wins the race in this case. The challenge, of course, is if you have three people who say that to you, right? What do you do then, right? Right. Um, and then I think, I think it's a judgment call. Who do you feel the most comfortable with? Okay. But I would caution folks, you know, you're going to have a long relationship, hopefully, right? So you, you, have, you have to feel super comfortable. Um, and I typically won't take on a client until I have a project that's ready to go Got or it. close to that, right? Got it. Or I see, I see all the signs that that's going to happen. Right. As you know, we have illustrators slash authors listening in on this conversation. What would be, I mean, from you, from you especially, someone who's been in this business as long as you have, performing as many different tasks you have, seeing as much as you have, what would be one one thing that you would want to say to anyone listening who wants to create a picture book? What I would say is this is not easy. It's not supposed to be easy. But at the same time, if you are tenacious and if you can't imagine yourself doing anything else, this is exactly what you should be doing. You know, ultimately, on some level, you will be successful if the if the efforts there comes down to also finding the right connections, which involves its own kind of tenacity. Right. So what a lot of people don't realize is, is it, whether you like it or not, you're part business person and part artist. Right. Mm -hmm. But but really, you know, and I go back to, you know, my my what I said about Ian Falconer, you knew he was born to do what he was, what he was going to do. And I would say this for all of my clients um, who are dedicated, you know, illustrators and authors, you know, they, uh, it was never a question that they were going to do what they're doing. Um, and I think that's so important and it's so gratifying when it happens. It's beyond gratifying. Um, but um, tenacity is the name of the game. To learn more about Rick and his agency, visit avitascreative.com. This podcast is produced by the Illustration Department, a global leader in online education for illustrators. Visit illustrationdept.com for class offerings, testimonials, the alumni showcase, the podcast show notes, our forum, the bookshop, and more. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.